Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. If you want to understand a little bit about what it's like to work on the front line of saving some of the world's rarest birds of prey, then you probably don't need to go much further than listening to Andre Botha of the Endangered Wildlife Trust. Andre travels all over the world saving rare species working on vultures, hornbills, eagles, owls, you name it. Andre's been there and he's seen it. Right, according to this, we should be live now as, as we speak, Andre. So, uh, Andre Bofer of the Endangered Wildlife Trust, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Um, it's really, really good of you to, uh, to uh, take some time out. I know you're a very, very busy man. Um, so, just start, I know all about, well, I say I know a bit about what you do because I follow you on Facebook. Just explain a bit about the... EWT and the work you get up to with them. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. Generally, I am quite busy, but I'm 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 quite a confined man, like so, like so many others around the globe at the moment. So, yeah, trying to keep busy. Uh, thanks for the invite and, and 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 wanting to talk to me about what we do um, and and the work that we do in general. So I work um, and uh, am employed by the Endangered Wildlife Trust, which is a conservation uh, NGO based in South Africa, but we do work uh, focused across Sub-Sahara Africa at this stage. Uh, and the work that I'm particularly currently involved in is managing a program known as the Voltus for Africa program, uh, which focuses on the implementation of the multi-species action plan for African Eurasian Voltus, particularly in the Sub-Saharan region. And then uh, currently, uh, mostly focused on Southern and East Africa. Um, so that's what I do, but the, the EWT focuses on a much broader spectrum of conservation projects, looking at a range of species and then a range of habitats. Uh, we have a carnival program that, that works with uh, a range of species, leopard, lion, wild dog, cheetah, etc. We have a crane program that focuses on all of the uh, cranes uh, in Africa. Uh, we have programs focused on amphibians, um, uh, a range of other species, but then also looking at specific habitats. So uh, it's an organization that's been in existence since 1973. And most of that, uh, and, and part of the reason for the establishment of the organization back in 1973 was vulture conservation at that stage, primarily in South Africa. And that's now expanded quite substantially uh, to the rest of the continent and in many ways also beyond that to Europe and, and Asia with uh, our involvement in the drafting of, of the multi-species action plan that looks at all three continents and, and focuses on all old world vultures. Yeah, so I'll, I'll put it in, I'll put it in the comments thing, um, the, the web address for EWT, because I had a quick look on the, on the page before I came on air, and there's loads of stuff on there, all, all the amphibians, the, the mammals, all the different, the different areas you cover, and then obviously the bird of prey programs and, and the vulture for mm. Africa stuff you do, so it was, and there's some videos, isn't there, I saw there's some quite cool YouTube videos 
yes. on there as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll stick that in the comments as well. Just so obviously I imagine most of this is going to be taken up by talking about vultures and hopefully most people tuning into Raptor Aid will, will know a little bit about the plight of the vultures. Um, I, I hope so anyway, because we sh share it enough. But do you want to just cover a bit about what the current situation is to anyone who's probably not quite up to speed with what's happening with vultures in Africa and then obviously the wider impact Europe and Asia as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we could certainly talk about vultures for as, for as long as you have time. Um, I, I normally... Uh, people get a bit unnerved because uh, once you start talking about them, you, you don't you don't quite stop. It's 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 a fairly complex situation. But but before I do that, it's probably also to just say um, that the Birds of Prey program that the UWT runs, uh, I was also responsible for the management of that for about fourteen years, and through uh, through that work, which focused on a on a much broader range, it focused on all the birds of prey that occur in southern Africa. Uh, and we also did work on southern ground hornbills um, and species like oxpickers, for instance, which are tiny birds that are not predatory at all, uh, but that also deserve conservation attention. So I've been fortunate in the 16 years that I've been with the Trust to work on a, on a, on a wide spectrum of projects, engaging with, with colleagues in some of the other programs uh, as well. So it's, it's been an interesting experience. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, pretty fortunate that the trust enables us to do this work and to focus on various things and to develop programs to the extent that that is necessary to do effective conservation. So to get back to the vultures, um, you know, th they certainly within an African context, we very widely talk about the African vulture crisis. Uh, we also know and, and many people will be familiar with the situation in South Asia where vultures have declined uh, calamitously to, uh, in the 1990s and, and early 2000s from millions of birds to less than 20,000 of, of three species due to a single factor, and that was the introduction of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory diclofenac. In Africa, the situation is a lot more complex, and uh, the threats that vultures face are also more varied, but by far the most significant of those threats would be uh, poisoning in various forms. And we can probably talk about some, some of the, the different types and, and so on um, if, if there's time. But we've seen uh, with an analysis that was done and published in 2015, that the vulture species that do occur in Africa, and there are 11 of those uh, that occur here, uh, on average decline by about 68%. Uh, over, over the entire populations in Africa over a 30-year period. Uh, and it's sad to say that some of those declines have, have actually increased uh, in the last six, seven years due to uh, a range of factors. So vultures in Africa, but also elsewhere in the old world, uh, in particular in Asia, are certainly uh, up against it. They are facing a crisis and we are really uh, challenged in, in terms of implementing effective conservation and continuing some of the good work that's already been done in some areas and to try and expand that to areas where no work is being done at all. Um, but there are also amongst all of that, there are some good news stories and I think that's what we generally focus on and we try and, and, and emulate that in, in areas where it needs to be done. Um, there's, there are encouraging signs in certain places but then in others, the challenge is massive and, and there's a huge amount of work that still needs to be done, not just yeah. for us in the current generation, uh, 
but I think in the foreseeable future to, to try and get some of these populations back to, to any similarity of what they were 100 years ago is going to require a substantial amount of work, a lot of resources and a lot of people that need to be involved and that support the work and that actually gets involved hands-on as well. Yeah, and I suppose it's worth pointing out that, as, as you've touched on, this isn't this isn't just restricted to Africa. Even though we're obviously having you here, that's what we want to. That's what I want to hear about. Is is it's a global. This is a a global mm-hmm. issue, a crisis. It is a crisis, and and it's going to impact on everyone. Whether you're sat in your kitchen like me in Britain to you know Africa and across Europe and Asia it's a it's a real problem so you touched on poisoning that's a bit that's is that the biggest issue you're facing at the moment in Africa um if you were to, yeah. pick, you to pick one yes without a doubt um and, and it's really in terms of the work that I do day to day probably the primary focus um it, 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 there's no doubt that, that the different types of poisoning has had a significant impact and still has. I mean, as we speak, we are dealing with a massive incident that's taken place in West Africa, in Guinea-Bissau, where uh, at, at current count, we have lost uh, in excess of 1,600 hooded vultures uh, in this incident that, that has taken place at various sites in that country that's linked to political instability, that's linked to the belief use where people believe that if they uh, are in possession of a uh, the head of a vulture that it gives them protection. Uh, in these uncertain times, um, you know, from, from a human perspective, you can almost uh, to a certain extent understand why people would do it, but you just cannot understand the large scale slaughter of these animals uh, to satisfy the need of, of, of a smaller number of people. Uh, so there are challenges. Uh, I mean, the, the poisoning happens in various ways. Um, and, and we've really approached it from the perspective of trying to enable and capacitate people on the ground that have got to deal with these, these challenges in, in terms of firstly being able to identify these poisoning incidents when they happen a lot quicker, to know what they look at, and then to know what to do and to initiate the correct uh, steps to try and reduce the impact of these incidents. Um, you know, people very quickly in the first world will ask you, but why don't you just ban all of the substances that are out there that people use to kill animals? Right. It's not that simple. There's so much of it out there. There's so much of it flowing in uh, continuously through various programs, a lot of it linked to agricultural activity and so on, that there's no way that you will get rid of these substances uh, at current levels. Uh, so it's out there. People are using it. They are using it for the wrong uh, for the wrong reasons and for purposes that it's not been manufactured for. And it's up to us then to try and intervene when they do use it and when it impacts wildlife to try and step in, reduce the amount of mortalities as much as we can. We're fortunate in that respect that we do have support from from a range of partners in Africa that we work with very closely. Uh, that agree with with the approach that we follow and that we work with and we are also very fortunate that we have partners from outside of Africa uh, on the one hand in terms of know-how of capacity uh, of assisting with the work that we are doing and that also assists uh, with with supporting us in in terms of funding Um, we have a very strong working relationship with the Conservancy Trust that I know that you're very familiar with and we've had that working relationship for more than 10 years, um, uh, primarily through uh, the, con- the contact was established between Campbell Murn and myself when he came through to Africa 
and did his PhD study on the white-headed vulture here, uh, I think we uh, we realized that that we sort of think about things in, in, in the same way. We both realized that there's a need to work with it. And, and, and through that realization also established ties with a number of other organizations and, and partners in Africa and outside. So the partnership has now been formalized over the last three, four years, uh, and it's known as the uh, Endangered Wildlife Trust or Conservancy Trust and University of Reading Partnership. And they are providing substantial financial support for the work that we do. They are certainly also part of the, the planning and the execution of that in terms of uh, providing assistance, guidance in terms of priorities uh, for the work that we should be doing. It's not just focused on, on the poisoning per se, but it also enables us to engage with people on the ground in Africa where there's a lack of knowledge in terms of vultures, the issues that affect them, is to capacitate uh, local people in various countries in Africa. And at the moment, we're working in Zambia, we're working in Mozambique, we've started uh, engaging with people in Malawi uh, and elsewhere, uh, is, is to try and fill these knowledge gaps by training people up locally to, uh, to sort of work conduct research, conduct monitoring, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the partnership certainly has enabled us to do that. And, and with the involvement of the University of Reading, we also uh, measure the impact of the work that we are doing. So it's not just about counting heads when you conduct training of rangers yeah. and other law courses. It's to see how well they use that training, how effective they are in implementing it. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the very early results show that in areas where they do implement it effectively, where they do plan, where they are prepared, they can make a significant difference, but they also are the unfortunate uh, examples of where people do get trained and where they simply uh, forget about what they have been trained on. They, they don't follow through, they don't prepare, they don't plan. And unfortunately, it, it does show in the results and in the losses that are suffered when incidents do happen. So it's a continued challenge, but I, I think we have made a significant difference and linked to that is, is also then bringing in other approaches and other tools that we can add uh, to try and, and alleviate and reduce the impact. Um, a good example of that, for instance, is now we have reached an agreement with the Junta Andalusia in Spain to come to Africa and to work with us and the Endangered Wildlife Trust in particular yeah. to train poisoning sniffer dogs that can be deployed and that can be used when these incidents do take place, but they could also be used as a preventative tool. Uh, you know, at border posts, um, at entrances to, to parks, etc., where people might uh, be transporting chemicals, etc., in, is to try and prevent these from, from ending up in the wrong hands and in the wrong places. So it, it's one example of, of looking at other solutions to the problem other than just training people. It's, it's looking at continuously expanding on what we can do and enabling people to use these tools and to have access to these tools at the same time. Yeah, and I, I know because um, well, I, I do. I, I follow the Hawk Conservancy Trust closely, and I've got some good, some great friends there. And hopefully, people again who, who follow Raptor Aid should, will be aware of the work that the Hawk Conservancy Trust do, the great conservation work they do. Um, and I'll I'll put in the comments box again a link to the Hawk Conservancy Trust because um, there's obviously the poison response kits that that they've developed with, you, with yourself at the EWT and the University of Reading. Um, how have they, have they been a real, real helping hand in, in, in your work in relation to training people and supporting communities with these issues? 
Yes, I mean, they, the kits are certainly a, a very uh, important tool. I mean, it's, it's one thing providing people with knowledge and skills, uh, and then they sit in, in often very remote areas and they simply don't have the equipment to do the basic work to address and, and reduce the impact of the poisoning, to, to collect samples for analysis and so on and so forth. And unless you provide them with these basic tools, they simply cannot do that. So it, it's, a, it's a critical component of, of uh, the added value that we, that we bring to the training is, is, by, uh, is through providing that. Uh, we've also looked at, at slightly different approaches in certain areas. You know, I think one of the, the challenges that we face in certain places is if you put these kits together and they are compiled in South Africa, we source the materials, we, uh, the, the bags are made by, you know, by a community-based project where uh, ladies from a local community are, are making the bags that the, you know that the equipment goes in but if you the moment you start shipping this outside of south africa uh, and into certain countries in africa it becomes pretty expensive from a, a customs and excise perspective so in southern africa in particular we generally can uh, move these items fairly effectively at uh, you know at, at an affordable cost but when it goes beyond that um, we we are looking at, and we have a list of equipment um, and, and then looking at maybe enabling organizations in country to actually compile these, these kits and put it together themselves and then issuing it uh, to, or, you know, to, the, to the various sites where we do conduct training. Yeah, and that, does, that, that does seem to, to work in certain areas uh, and certainly beyond Africa where uh, we've recently, uh, just before the lockdowns, et cetera, started uh, we did some training in Cambodia in Southeast Asia. And we conducted two training sessions there and ahead of time just forwarded the list of equipment that is needed for these kits. They put it together, uh, the, uh, the BirdLife International Cambodia program sourced everything, put the kits together. So when the training was concluded, we were able to hand over these kits uh, to the relevant sites where it, where it was needed and uh, they've been using those. And the good news from Cambodia is that they've been able to intervene in three incidents already in the month since the training has taken place. Uh, and they're quite excited about this. There's, there's good momentum even there to start addressing this. Um, so, you know, within Africa and outside of Africa where people are empowered, where they are equipped, they can make a difference. And, you know, one is encouraged to see where they do what needs to be done and they do the right thing uh, and people are prepared, they have planned, they have things ready, they make significant differences. And, and uh, it's those sorts of success stories that really motivates you and, and that helps you to keep going. Uh, so that when you face incidents like we currently do in Guinea-Bissau and maybe uh, a number of other incidents that have happened over the last 15 months or so, uh, that certainly keeps you going and, and it keeps you motivated because uh, you know, working in that sort of environment, working with wildlife poisoning, it's it's not the most uplifting sort of environment to be in a lot of the time. I can imagine it's pretty, uh, I mean, I've, I've read from afar about the Guinea-Bissau incident, and I can imagine it's pretty grisly um, work to, uh, to be involved in. Someone's actually just asked, has there been an update on, or are there any updates on what's, what's happened with the Guinea-Bissau case, where there were so many vultures, obviously hooded vultures killed? Is there any... Yes. New latest news well the uh, the political instability is unfortunately still fairly prevalent uh, but uh, fortunately there there were two team teams that were able to be deployed into the field that went to the two sites where 
most of these, these poisonings had taken place. So they were able to go and assess the situation first and they confirmed uh, the motivation behind the poisoning being associated with belief use where people were looking for protection. And that is to a certain extent linked to the political instability that took place around about the same time the first poisonings took place. Uh, that stability uh, or instability hasn't really uh, changed significantly. And uh, the good news is that we were able to, uh, with one of our representatives on the ground, a, a member of the multi-specialist group of the IUCN, we were able to get permits and to actually get three of the vulture carcasses out of Guinea-Bissau. Um, Guinea-Bissau doesn't have any capacity to conduct toxicological analysis, for instance, on, on, these, on these birds. Um, so we were able to, to, to move three of these carcasses on the last flight out of Guinea-Bissau before the lockdown took place. Um, they were flown out to Portugal. They are currently at the university in, in Lisbon. Uh, the post-mortems have been carried out. The analysis is, is taking a bit of time. You need to keep in mind, uh, and I'm sure that you are very aware in Europe how the lockdown has affected all of you. So it, it's taking a bit of time. Uh, the simple fact about determining what the substance is, is it's a little bit uh, after the fact. And the, the simple fact is that the current toll of vultures that have been killed is just over 1,600 that we know of. Um, all of those, uh, with the exception of a single whiteback vulture, are all hooded vultures. Uh, and hooded vultures in West Africa are birds that are living commensally with, with, with people. They live in towns, in cities, they play a significant role in uh, the, and they provide a sanitary service to a lot of these settlements by removing human waste, by feeding on waste dumps, removing, uh, removing a, a lot of organic material that could potentially be uh, sources where uh, certain species like flies, etc., could really proliferate and could be a problem in terms of the spread of, of, uh, of some diseases potentially. So, uh, you know, Guinea-Bissau is considered to be a stronghold for the species or was considered to be a stronghold for the species in West Africa and losses like this simply has been a devastating blow yeah. to the already uh, declining uh, populations of vultures in West Africa per se. So there's a lot of concern around this. Uh, there are challenges in engaging with governments or who the government is and who the right people are to talk to. Lots of challenges around this. And at the moment, of course, um, with the, the COVID situation, restricted movements and so on and so forth, it's anybody's guess what, what is happening at the moment. So there is a lot of concern around this. But we have engaged at a level uh, through the IUCN, through the species, through CITES, etc. Uh, I think to a very large extent, there's, there's a lot more awareness inside the country, but also outside the country. Uh, and we will certainly try and do what we can remotely initially to do what needs to be done. And then longer term idea would be for us to engage directly once uh, the situation has gone back to a position where you actually go to the country is to probably engage in a similar sort of initiative to what we've done in Eastern South Africa to start with training, make people aware of the risks uh, associated with, with the use of these toxins, uh, the killing of these birds, the impact that it has, and then training people on the ground to better respond to these incidents so that you don't end up with hundreds of birds being poisoned. Uh, there might still be losses, but to reduce it significantly. So uh, I think one of our key focal areas would be to expand the initiative, um, also considering that 
uh, we'll probably need to look at translating the materials that we are using and so on but is to engage and to try and get training done uh, in that part of the world uh, to make people uh, able to respond better and, and, and to reduce the impact of these incidents when they happen. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's, it's just nice to know that you're on the ground. And, and uh, I know, I, I feel I should touch on now, if, if anyone does visit the EWT website or, or the Hawk Conservancy, you can donate, you know, because as you were mentioning, the work that needs to be done all i could think of as much as i hate to i'm not money orientated at all it's certainly with but conservation and this sort of work costs money so so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. and it's often we, we found this out yesterday talking to jason from the philippine eagle foundation when a crisis another crisis occurs like COVID-19 it has an impact on conservation even further because resources are removed often from things that are seen as not so important potentially and yep. wildlife conservation uh, to be to be pushed into you know a more anthropological yep. um, thing so yeah if anyone can can make a donation that would be greatly Appreciated. I have had another question about, um, I don't want to be too doom and gloom. It's difficult with vultures, I know, sadly, at the moment. Someone's asked about electrocutions. Uh, how are you, how do you, are the um, power boards or the, the, the people that have the, the infrastructure in place, are they working with you at the moment? Or is, is it, how, how's that working? When it comes to collisions with power lines and, and large birds in general, than not just birds. Well, in, you know, from, from an African perspective, uh, the impact of of energy infrastructure is is a bit of an unknown, except for probably South Africa, where we, for more than thirty years, have been uh, have had a very close and, and a strong partnership and working relationship with the electricity utility in 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 our country, and we've worked with them in partnership. They've actually spent huge amounts of, of money uh, and, and working with us. And, and we have a team of people through our wildlife energy program that uh, goes out and does assessments of, of power lines. Uh, we have a system where people can report mortalities to us in this country. Uh, we've got a database that, that goes back about 25 years of, of all power line mortalities, both electrocutions and collisions. Uh, and also, of course, now with the new so-called green energy or the renewable energy in the form, form of wind turbines, uh, that's been added to the database. You know, as these developments expand in, in South Africa, uh, we are keeping tabs on that. We are engaging with those utilities, also with the companies that develop these facilities. Um, and we have a finger on the pulse in terms of where the problem areas are, where the high risk areas are. We're in a good position that we can influence decisions in terms of the routing of uh, networks and, and where they run, you know, so that they don't, uh, they are not established too close to flyways where where birds could be affected by it. And then, likewise, also in Africa with the the large game that we have, we work with uh, wildlife authorities, for instance, uh, in areas to ensure that you know that these lines don't impact animals like giraffes and elephants that like to push over things. Uh, they push over a utility pole and a whole lot of things can be affected by that. It's to sort of work with them on ways to deter uh, or to reduce impact 
with some of this infrastructure with large animals. Um, so that that's that's been going, and and it and it does work. And I think with the work that we've done, and with the amount of support that we get from them in, in a South African context, uh, they've we, we've done remarkably well, and they, and they've done fantastic work uh, over the last twenty five years. The downside of this is probably, with the exception of Namibia, there isn't really a program like this in any other country in Africa. So of the fifty four countries across the continent. Uh, they, from what we know at the moment, there are two that are that are monitoring these sorts of things. The rest of the continent is there. Uh, there are extensive networks. There are plans for much more of these or many more of these networks to be developed across the continent. You know, more than 60% of the African population today still doesn't have access to electricity. Uh, yeah. So there is a demand for it. And because there is a demand, because in many cases, governments are dependent on votes and uh, you know it's it's one of those nice carrots to hang in front of the nose of the voter is that we will provide um, these networks are going to be developed uh, it, it's just the reality and we need to be in a position to start influencing these decisions in terms of where those lines are what they are what the construction are what the configurations are before these massive new projects are, are rolled out um, we have started engaging, uh, and and we we are fortunate in that the example that we can use with this partnership that we've had with the utility in South Africa, we can engage with utilities elsewhere in Africa through this utility, rather than a conservationist like me going and sitting and then trying to encourage the utility to do the right thing, is to bring the utility into play. They go and sit around the table and they put forward this very convincing uh, and this. Uh, well, it's a bit of a no-brainer if you think about it, how much money you save from not having power outs, from not having to go and repair lines the whole time mm -hmm. that, are, you know, that are damaged when, when these collisions and electrocutions occur. The utility goes there and, and, and puts forward this argument. It's a lot more convincing. Uh, and we've started doing that. Uh, one of, you know, some of our staff have been up into East Africa earlier this year. Uh, we've actually engaged and started engaging about 10 years ago with utilities up there. It takes a while in terms of uptake, but we are confident that, you know, that, that the message is starting to get across and, and that, that there will be changes made. Um, but I think to answer the initial question, yes, these lines certainly do have an impact. Uh, and that's why it's important that we are in a position to influence where they are developed, where they run, uh, and to make sure that the structures are on the one hand safe if birds or animals do make use of them, um, and to try and reduce the risk of collision as much as we possibly can. Brilliant. Well, it does, yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds like they are listening to you. But when you, <laughs> like, yeah, well, again, when you were talking about the countries, I was thinking to myself, yeah, well, Africa's a continent. <laughs> it's huge. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, yes. uh, so good, good luck with that one. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, but it sounds like you're doing a, a great job. Right. Okay. Let's have a bit of, bit of, not so much sort of macabre deaths and poisonings and stuff like that. I know, obviously, for me, I, I get asked this question a lot. In fact, I'll leave this question till the end. But I think you've got a dream job, personally. Uh, I think I've, I've been lucky enough to go to Africa a couple of times, watching birds of prey and, and doing various things. Um, if, what's your go-to place, Andre? You've been you've been all over the place. So go on. What's your for for Pure bird of prey experience. You can say one or two, three or four, if you want. But yeah, what's your? Yeah, it's very difficult to to single out a single place. I mean, I think 
in terms of life experience for me personally, um, I've had a, uh, a lifelong association and I've been fortunate to work in, in, in the Kruger National Park on and off for 30 years. Uh, so, so quite obviously, it would be one of the first places that come to mind. Uh, spent many, many days, years in the field. Uh, initially, way before you know, uh, the, the primary focus became became birds per se. My background really is is formal conservation and and the, and, and and the management of areas. So I I was a ranger and, and trained rangers and, and was sort of working in, in anti poaching and, and it all started there. Uh, back in the late 1980s, and uh, it's a place that really is really part of part of who I am, and and, and sort of in, in, in to a very large extent shaped who I am, and and, and I'm fortunate in a way that uh, a lot of that experience I can I can still put to good use today. When you engage with rangers anywhere in Africa, uh, there's 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 a common thread that runs through it, and and it and it makes it a lot easier when you engage with them and you train, and now you talk to them about the conservation of birds and other wildlife in terms of poisoning but that common thread is there that we are rangers and i i think like one i know what they do i know the challenges that they face because i was one myself yeah uh, and and you sort of learn through what they do that rangers operate most efficiently if they have people that lead from the front that that know what their needs are that that make sure that they are properly equipped and that they properly train and this is one component that I can add on to now with, with, with adding this into it, especially in terms of making sure that they, uh, they ensure their own safety when they engage with, with these incidents. So, yep. yeah, getting back to sites and getting back to positive things, um, Kruger most certainly will, will, for, will always be part of, of who I am. But I've been very, very fortunate in, in being able to, um, you know, travel to many parts of Africa, seeing some really amazing places and seeing amazing things, seeing some amazing wildlife spectacles that as a, as a seven, eight, 10 year old kid lying on, on, on his bed, paging through an atlas and reading books. And, you know, I still have quite a few of those books that I had as a kid, you know, these animal encyclopedias and all that sort of stuff. I, think, well, I want to see this and I want to see that. I've been very, very fortunate in, in being able to go to a lot of these places and to see quite a lot of that. So, you know, it, it's it's a bit unfair to really ask me, even if it's just in an African context, you know, what what would you say? They ask just so many. And then when you go to other continents, which I've also been lucky to do, um, you know, seeing tigers in the wild in, in Asia, seeing Asian elephants in the wild, yeah. even um, going to South America and into the Amazon basin, we still are so fortunate to live on this incredibly amazing planet that that we call home it's just a pity that we tend to uh rather than than look after it tend to just think that we that it's become one of the utilities and something that we could use and if it doesn't have value uh to us in in terms of of uh pounds uh, or dollars or whatever then, then it doesn't have value at all um i think there's so much still out there that that is amazing and and that people should really covered and, and, and should look after. Um, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't always happen, but there's there's still an amazing amount to see um, and, and, and to enjoy. So um, I would encourage people whenever, whenever you have the opportunity, again, who knows when that might be considering the current situation, 
is get out there and enjoy it as much as you yeah, can. Yeah, absolutely. My my go-to, I'm gonna I'm gonna indulge myself. It probably was a bit of a naughty question to ask, really, especially yeah, because <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't answer it. But one of my when it comes to if someone asked me about Africa, I've been lucky enough to go to uh, go to the Drakensberg Mountains, mm-hmm. and I went I went up on to Lesotho up to Lesotho as well. Um, yeah. and watch the bearded vulture fly across the top, cruise about my height, like our level. Um, so, yeah, and then we went for a beer in that pub that's at the top of the at the top up there Sardi as well. Yes. Yeah, the Sardi Pass. So, so that for, that was perfect for me. That was a yeah. That, that's one memory that I'll never forget. So yeah. yeah I've, I've been I've been fortunate in that uh, I spent eight <laughs> years of my career as as a ranger working in the Drakensberg, in the Northern Berg in particular. And, um, you know, being fortunate to see bearded vultures on a, on a regular basis. I remember we one year did a, an aerial survey of that entire mountain massif and, and, and counting all of the bearded vulture nests, flying, you know, sometimes flying with them. Um, also following on that uh, more recently, about 12 years ago, sort of doing another survey in a much smaller helicopter uh, and having a few interesting experiences with, with hectic winds and uh, and so on and, and sort of making sure that you try and get on the ground uh, as soon as you possibly can. So there have been lots of interesting moments and experiences as well with that. But the, uh, you know, those montane areas most certainly are, are quite amazing uh, and, and, and wonderful to work in. So, you know, again, as I say, I've been, I've been very fortunate in, in being able to work there, working in, in, in areas like Kruger and then going to lots of other places in, in Africa that are just as astounding. I mean, the Serengeti Mara system, the Ruanzori's in, uh, in southern Uganda, uh, places like that, uh, you know, going up to Murchison Falls in, in Uganda a couple of months ago. Uh, there are just so, so many areas. The Kalahari, where I'm supposed to have been now, busy yeah. working, uh, if it wasn't for the lockdown, there's just so much uh, that, that you can enjoy and that we are privileged to see. Um, you know, for me, it, it's almost unthinkable that, you know, people would, would prefer to ignore these things existing and, and sort of live a completely urban existence. But, you know, to each his own. Um, uh, just fortunate that, that we enjoy this sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I've got the question I was going to put to the end. You've kind of answered some, some of it in, in there. You've, it's one of the questions I often get asked when I go to universities or schools or what, what, whatever well, uh, scenario is with younger with a younger generation or younger people than me um, is how do I get involved so if uh, this might be a really difficult question again and you've kind of partly answered how I answer is to get out there and just do it you've said that but if you were to give a young raptor biologist conservationist or just anyone interested in in raptors one bit of advice what would it be to finish off with this is what this is what we're going to finish off with well i, I was for a, for a moment they uh, very tempted to to sort of put on a very solemn face and say don't do it um, but, <laughs> but that, that would be that that would be lying um, i mean i i never have regretted doing this but it but i think to a very large extent for many of us that are doing this we are born to do this it's something that's been part of my conscious for as long as I've known myself that that's I'm doing what I've wanted to do from way back then it's not something that you do as as a bit of a gimmick it's it really is Uh, and yeah it's a bit of a cliche but it is a calling 
rather than a job. I mean, if, if you if you see this as just a job, then you probably shouldn't be in it. Uh, if you see it as an opportunity to just work and play with animals, it's also something that I can tell you now. It, it's one of the first lessons that you learn when you work in this. You probably don't work directly hands-on with animals as much as uh, as you as you think that you that you can do. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions, but I'm talking about animals out there in situ, not animals in captivity. Um, mm -hmm. But I would never discourage young people to to become part of this. Uh, at the same time, you know, you can also say to people, you need to be realistic in your expectations. But I would say, if you are motivated, you are keen, you are interested, again, as you said, get out there, start doing it, make yourself be known in terms of your interest in what you want to do. Um, you can start basically just with your environmental club at school, start doing work with them, go, go on these outings, uh, get involved with it. And um, if you have, and I, I think one of the, the great things about UK culture, and I'm fortunate to sort of have spent quite a bit of time there uh, on occasion, is your culture of volunteerism that you have. I think to start out as volunteers working and, and you know, just seeing how people are engaged. And, you know, sometimes people even of a fairly advanced age that have been volunteers at organizations like Conservancy for many years, that's how you can start off doing it. Um, but you know, if, if you want to really make a career out of it, the, the other important thing is, is make sure that you get a proper, uh, you know, a, a proper qualification that you study uh, and, and, and get a, a, a degree within the field that you can then use. Uh, you know, it, it so often happens that people somehow think that they, 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 can, they can short circuit the process and just get out there. And as long as I love animals and as long as I put myself out there, it'll be good. You still need a good grounding, you still need good education, and you still need a good training to be able to do a lot of these things. Um, and, and many people will tell you that. And, and I also work with conservationists that have, that have been there that maybe haven't all gone all that way to, to get that, that education. And they end up very often being frustrated. And they ultimately then, at, a, at an older age, go back to the books and go back to studying to, to get to where they need to be. So you'll need to do that. You've got you've to eat the spinach and the broccoli uh, together with the other nicer stuff uh, to get where you need to. But the simple thing is just, just, just get yourself out there and do it. You know, when I started studying uh, for this back, back in the day, people said to me, but you're not going to get a job and it doesn't pay a lot of money. Well, firstly, the amount of, of, of what you get paid doesn't really matter if, if this is what you do. I don't care about salaries that much as long as long as I can exist and as long as I can eat. Um, but it's doing the job that that is what it's all about. Uh, but likewise, you know, since I've finished uh, my initial undergrad studies, I've never been out of a job. Uh, and I've been fortunate, but I think a lot of people can say the same. It's once you get into it, and you you sort of establish yourself I don't really think uh, you would want to do anything else. So I, I would highly recommend people to consider it as an option, but you need to make sure that this is something that you really, really want to do. Definitely, yeah, I've, I've always said the same thing, passion. It's all about, pa if you're passionate about it, you, you can make it You can make it happen. And, and yeah. yeah, yeah I, I'm a little bit weary about the, you know, about the word passion. It's, uh, it's thrown about very loosely. You know, you, you need to just look at some of these reality TV shows oh. where singing is my passion. And when somebody opens oh. their mouth, uh, it, it's pretty horrendous. <laughs> so uh, I was, you know, I, I think we, we need to just, 
yes, it needs to be a passion, but you need to make sure that it really is a passion and it really, and that you really have aptitude for it as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to check out my singing. My singing voice, definitely. I don't have passion for that. I can assure you that. <laughs> I can stay. Brilliant. Right, Andre, I'm going to let you go. I know you're very busy and I'm, I've got another thing coming up as well in, in 15 minutes. So thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I, I could have talked to you all afternoon. Uh, well, our, yeah, both our afternoons, yeah. Um, so it's been a pleasure. And if I get any more questions, I'll, I'll forward them on to you. But thank you very much. I will end the live streaming now. Uh, anyone got any other questions? Feel free to drop them in um, and we'll have another live stream soon. All right, thanks everyone. Bye for now.